This is a faithful saying, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am chief. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15. I'm Jason Garcia, and this is Faithful Sayings. Well, good morning, and thanks for joining me again. My Bible is open to Revelation chapter 1. If you want to be turning there to Revelation chapter 1, we're going to be thinking about Sunday this morning, the day Sunday. What's so special about it? Why is there, for the most part, the vast majority of of churches who meet, um, why Sunday? Why do they choose the first day of the week? You know, it's depending on who you talk to, it could be associated with church, it could be associated with uh, football and barbecues in our culture probably more than anything else that's just as uh, unfortunately just as sacred and significant uh, to to those folks uh, don't get me wrong i i enjoy football um but uh, but usually that's you know it's it's usually associated with fun and frolic or it's a day of rest or uh, some something like this but any notion of it as a a religious day a special day uh, to americans i think is uh, maybe fading somewhat, I think, on, on the, the secular side, whereas maybe there used to be a, a generally agreed upon, even in the secular world, that Sunday was a religious day, a special day, the first day of week, a, a day of worship. Um, not not so much anymore. It's more of an inconvenience uh, if, if it clashes with, you know, family activities or a vacation schedule. Uh, so we want to look in the Bible this morning and see what the attitude was uh, toward the first day of the week, what what perspective did the biblical writers have, uh, and the Christians have in the first century regarding the first day of the week? And so, take a look at what the Bible says about Sunday, beginning in Revelation, as John is introducing introducing that book, the last book of the Bible. He says, "I was in the spirit on the Lord's day." In verse ten, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice. And then we begin to get the. The Revelation, the book, and that's how the book of Revelation begins. So what did John, here's the question, what did John mean uh, by the Lord's Day? And I think Scripture has the answer. Uh, but I want to share with you before we get started a couple of uh, other sources from the first century. So these these quotes are from Christians who live from anywhere from 35 A.D. to 100, to 100 A.D. So within, um, uh, uh, within 100 years of Jesus' ascension, uh, this first fellow named Ignatius of Antioch, uh, was born in, in 35 A.D., so uh, he was he was born not just a, but a few years after uh, uh, Jesus was crucified and, and had his ministry. So he was, you know, a member of the, the earliest, uh, the, the early church. Uh, so this is what he had to say about Sunday. He says, at the dawning of the Lord's day, so there's that, he's using that same terminology that John uses. Uh, I think that that's an important connection for us to make. In Revelation 1, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And Ignatius says, At the dawning of the Lord's day, he arose from the dead, that is Jesus, according to what was spoken by himself. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man also be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Uh, so Ignatius is quoting Jesus, I believe, there from Matthew chapter 12. Uh, and then he goes on to say, The day of the preparation then comprises the passion, the the Sabbath embraces the the burial, and the Lord's Day contains the resurrection. So, uh, by passion and 
Uh, he's referring to Friday by Sabbath, obviously means the seventh day of the week or Saturday uh, embraces the burial. Uh, when Jesus would have been uh, one of the days that he remained in the tomb was buried. And then the Lord's day, that is the first day of the week, contains the resurrection. Uh, that we, you know, we corroborate that terminology with scripture. And the Lord's day was the first day of the week. He was raised up on the third day, uh, which fell on Sunday. Uh, now here's a qu- another quote from Justin Martyr. And then I'll be be done with extra biblical sources, and I'll have some more passages to share about. I just want to establish the fact that the, that the earliest Christians understood this terminology to be pointing to the first day of the week. That this terminology meaning the Lord's day. So when we see that term in the Scripture, at least the way John is using it in Revelation one, he's thinking about he was he's referring to Sunday. This is the first day of the week that John received this revelation. Uh, so this quote from Justin Martyr says, on the day called Sunday, now Justin lived a little bit later. He lived from 100 to 165 A.D., So, but still, uh, that's still within 100 years of Jesus' ascension. So we're, st- we're talking about the, the, uh, an early, early member of the church. Uh, and he says, on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as, as long as time permits. But Sunday is the day on which we hold all our common assemblies because it is the first day on which God, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world and Jesus Christ our Savior on the same day rose from the dead. So uh, he's uh, essentially saying the same thing that uh, Ignatius was uh, back there, that Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. And we have this example that uh, we assemble on Sunday, as we're going to see here just a minute from the Scriptures, and that's what we do as he's explaining uh, that's from one of his apologies, the first apology, as he's defending uh, the faith there. So my point is, in sharing that with you, that the Apostle John in Revelation was simply inspired to use language that was already familiar to first century Christians like Ignatius or Justin, who worshipped on the Lord's Day or Sunday. And so John is saying, in the Lord's Day, I, I received the revelation. On Sunday, I received the revelation. So Scripture reveals to us also some peculiar things about uh, worship that we are to do as God's people on Sunday. We, uh, I, I know that the Bible teaches in Romans chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 12, and verse 1, that we are to pre- present our whole bodies as living sacrifices, which is our spiritual service of worship, and that everything we do, Colossians 3.17, is to be done in the name of the Lord, and that all things are to be done to the glory of God, First Peter 4. 11. So everything we do, whether we eat or drink, let it all be done to the glory of God, Paul tells the church in Corinth. Uh, so our whole life is to be lived in service and worship to God. But when it comes to uh, collective worship or, or the worship acts that we do within the assembly, uh, God has defined what those are for us. And when we look into the scripture, not only do we see uh, the day that those acts were to be performed, um, like observing the Lord's Supper or or giving of our means uh, to the church uh, financially to further the cause of the kingdom, uh, singing together, praying, all these things. When we look in the context of those assemblies and what's, what specifically the people, Christians were doing, uh, we also see the day, the day that they did it on. And there's a reason for, for that. Uh, so we, we very quickly get a comprehensive picture if we just begin to look in the New Testament. So for example, let's go to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14 
and uh, read what Paul has to say there. So here we get a, a glimpse of what what was to be done, and also, of course, the the day that uh, Christians perform these acts of worship. He says in First Corinthians fourteen. If you want to be turning there, 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 16, Paul says, When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, uh, a tongue, meaning a language or an interpretation of a language, he says, uh, and everything must be done so that the church may be built up. So all these things, singing hymns, uh, teaching, hearing, preaching, uh, hearing revelation, uh, uh, revelation in the sense of uh, revealed knowledge, not the book of Revelation specifically. Uh, Paul says all this says when you, all this happens when you come together. When you come together at the beginning of that verse. So uh, when was that? Uh, well, Paul, this is First Corinthians fourteen is just a very small part of a larger discussion that begins in chapter eleven, where Paul is giving them instruction about when you come together as a church. And that's exactly what he says in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 11. When you come together as a church, uh, and then the verse that we just read, he says, when you come together. So he's talking about the same assembly. When you come together as a church, this is what you need to be doing. This is how you need to behave. And of course, the Corinthians were having a lot of trouble with uh, the Lord's Supper. You can go to 1 Corinthians 10, 11 and see that as Paul is correcting some misconceptions there that they had and how they were misusing and abusing the Lord's Supper uh, misusing spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and the assembly, uh, and, and thus the instruction in 1 Corinthians 14 that, that we read. Uh, you know, each of you has a hymn, each of you has a word of revelation. And in that context, he will say, you need to take turns talking so that there's not chaos in the church or in the assembly, so you don't have two or three people standing up at once trying to demonstrate their miraculous gifts um, and so forth. But, uh, but all of that falls within the context of discussing the worship assembly uh, when they came together. So, again, when when was that? He's giving instruction. Uh, so what day specifically did the Corinthians come together as a church to do these things, sing hymns, hear instruction, so forth? Uh, and the answer is, within the same context, you just go forward to two, cha- uh, two chapters to 1 Corinthians 16. 1 Corinthians 16, so Paul is still giving instruction about what they're doing in these assemblies, what they should be doing in these assemblies. And in 1 Corinthians 16, if you just want to read the first couple of verses with me, uh, this is what he says. He says, um, Concerning the collection of for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And so the, the same day that they did these other things, coming together as a church to worship, to sing, to hear instruction, to observe the Lord's Supper, was the same day that they took up this financial collection, this collection that Paul is speaking about for the relief of needy saints. And he says, I told the church of Galatia to do the same thing on the first day of the week. In your Bible, instead of saying churches of Galatia, uh, your Bible may read the assemblies of Galatia. Uh, so keep in mind that the instruction that's given to the church at Corinth here in 1 Corinthians 16 was not exclusive to this church. In other words, this wasn't just a command that Paul gave to Corinth only. Uh, He gave it to several churches. And Paul says explicitly this is to be done on the first day of of the week. Uh, So bear with me and just I'm going to get a little bit uh, technical here. Uh, So depending on time and culture, 
the first day of the week has been referred to differently. Uh, but if we just do a little of investigating, we'll see that, yeah, it's different, but it's it's essentially the same, this, the same the same way that we would call uh, Sunday or the first day of the week. The Greeks called it Helios uh, after their sun god. Okay, so that language should sound familiar to the Roman. The Romans called it uh, Die Solis. Uh, so we recognize Solis probably as referring to solar or the sun. Day of the sun is what that literally means. And eventually under Constantine, who was a Roman emperor around A.D. 321, uh, who established a Christianity as a, as a national religion, or at least attempted to, he referred to Sunday as Dies Dominica, or Dominica, uh, and that means, translated, the Lord's Day. That's what he called it. So all that to say, uh, across time and across culture, cultures, we're all referring to the same day, Sunday, the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. That's the same day the Bible says Christians are to assemble to worship God and perform these acts of worship that we've been looking at, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Corinthians 16. Of course, these aren't the only places in the New Testament. I'm just holding up Corinthians as, as an example. You know, Again, this command, these commands were not exclusive uh, to them. We have lots of letters uh, with the same instruction. Uh, Ephesians and Colossians, for, you know, for example, we know the books of the New Testament. So Paul says, again, even in this very context of 1 Corinthians 16, these instructions, he says, I gave to the churches of Galatia or the assemblies of Galatia. So that would be congregations in Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe. Uh, so we're we're talking about a, a widespread here. And maybe there's other cities, other congregations that aren't explicitly mentioned. And that should come as no surprise to us. That should come as no surprise to us, this consistency that Paul is talking about. Because, in, again, in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 17, he says that he taught the ways in Christ Jesus everywhere in every church. Everywhere in every church. So he didn't tailor, Paul didn't try to tailor the gospel to meet societal or cultural whims and mores, but he was consistent in what he taught because he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, he was told by God what he needed to teach. So uh, his doctrine was the same everywhere that he went. So even when he comes to Troas, if we go to Acts chapter 20 now, back in time here to Acts chapter 20, uh, when he comes to the church who was in, in Troas, and Troas was about 200 miles away from Corinth, uh, Luke records in Acts chapter 20, on the first day of the week, Acts chapter 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them. You see, it's consistent. The first day of the week, the church in Troas, 200 miles away from Corinth, and even further away from Galatia, also met on the first day of the week. They also met on Sunday. And guess what they were doing? Well, Luke says they were doing the exact same thing that Paul instructed the Corinthians to do and the Galatians to do. They were there to break bread, that is, observe the Lord's Supper, uh, that doesn't refer to a common meal. They did have a common meal afterwards, if you keep reading that that context. Uh, but they were gathered together to break bread, and Paul was preaching to them. They gathered together to hear gospel preaching and teaching. So whether local churches were separated by 200 miles or 1,200 miles, Paul delivered the same teaching. They taught and practiced the same thing. They assembled together on the same day of every week, Sunday. And they colloquial, colloquially 
uh, commonly referred that referred to that as the Lord's Day, and some Christians still do today, that I've encountered. So even if we just take a cursory reading of the epistles, I mean, we've only looked at a few passages this morning from Corinthians and the book of Acts, we can begin to form already a complete picture of what Christians did in their assemblies on Sunday. And from the beginning, from the beginning of the church's establishment, they understood the necessity of meeting and assembling together. So the concept of a maverick Christian is foreign to Scripture. So the concept of, of, a, of a Christian who just says, well, I can't, I can't get along with any church, I can't find a church where I fit uh, or that suits me, that's foreign to the New Testament. Brothers and sisters in Christ should cherish the opportunity to be together and embrace one another as our brethren did in the first century. This is how they're described in Acts chapter 2. This is going back to the, to the very beginning. Now, right after the church was established, there's 3,000 converts in one day. And it says in Acts chapter 22 and verse 42 that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And in verse 46, it says, Day by day, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple. So what do we see? We see commonality. We see unity. We see people uh, relishing in this opportunity to, to devote themselves to the teaching, to hearing the preaching, and to fellowship, being together, working together for the cause of the gospel. And when Christians began to grow lax in their assembling and meeting together, they were rebuked for it in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 24 and 25. And the reason that they were that they were growing lax in this, I mean, we could probably sympathize with. Because these Hebrews, it wasn't that they were just uh, getting lazy and fulfilling their responsibilities. They were being persecuted. They were being threatened, and their property was being taken away, and some of them were being beaten. Uh, and so they were tempted then just to slide back into Judaism uh, because of the Hebrew audience that is uh, under consideration here in, in the book of Hebrews in chapter 10. But even then, the instruction is, don't do that. Verse 24 of Hebrews chapter 10, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the day, all the more as you see the day drawing near. So these people were being arrested. They were being persecuted. They were having their property seized. And yet the writer, this Holy Spirit is saying, Don't forsake coming together. Don't forsake your assembling together but rather seize those opportunities to encourage one another. So failing to assemble with the saints on the Lord's day, barring a legitimate reason, is sinful. I know that there's people who are uh, handicapped or, or maybe even terminally ill and they're, and they're, um, you know, they're confined to a bed. Uh, and that's the, end, that's the end of the story. You know, I, I understand that. But also, again, Barring those legitimate reasons, if we fail to assemble with the saints, with God's people on the Lord's day, the Bible says that's sinful. The brethren in the beginning in Jerusalem understood this. And they used the portico of the temple as their meeting place. They didn't have a church building like we commonly see as we drive up and down the road. They didn't have a meeting place like that. Uh, so brethren in the first century were meeting in people's houses. They were meeting in schools. Uh, they were meeting in public places 
uh, in this case, as I mentioned, the portico of the temple, uh, brethren in Philippi, when the church was established, Paul met them down by a river, uh, and then later in, in, in houses. So, and, and in some places where the whole Jewish community was converted, you know, they just kept using their synagogue, uh, you know, cause they already had a quote unquote church building in, in place there. So, but, but the point is across the board, all Christians understood in the beginning, they needed to spend time with their brethren and not only spend time with their brethren, but they were commanded to worship together on a specific day of the week to do very specific things. Again, those things that we've been considering this morning. It all happened to be on a Sunday, praying together, singing together. You know, prayer was something that they engaged in as individuals and that we need to do as well uh, in our homes and before meals. And, and just, you know, Paul says, pray without ceasing is what he tells the church at Thessalonica. But uh, collectively in our assemblies, in, in, in the church, as Paul says, when you come together as a church, we need to do this as well. And Paul affirms this repeatedly in his in his letters. Uh, you know, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 1, he says, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. And he's talking about the assembly in that context. If you go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, Timothy was in Ephesus, and Paul wanted Timothy to know how he should conduct himself as an evangelist in the church at Ephesus. And he says, this is what I want to happen. I want you to offer up prayers. And thanksgiving and treaties be made on behalf of all men. And the verse I mentioned in Thess, uh, Thessalonians is in First Thessalonians uh, five seventeen that, that they should be devoted to prayer or pray without pray without ceasing. First uh, Thessalonians five seventeen and Colossians four two. So God expects local churches to be prayerful, and this would certainly include prayers in a, in assemblies on the first day of. Of the week, remember Thessalonians and Colossians, uh, and even First Timothy. Even though it's addressed to an individual, ultimately were instructions for the church and the churches in those places. And so the New Testament reveals also not only do we need to pray when we come together, but we also need to sing praises when we come together. Remember, Paul says each one of you has a hymn, a hymn or or a song, a spiritual song when you come together and. Again, that's common to the New Testament. That's not the only place we see that instruction. Ephesians 5.19, for example. Paul says, Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Ephesians 5.19. So we sing as an act of worship when we, when we come together, offering up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that gives thanks to His name, is the way the Hebrew writer states it in Hebrews 13 and verse 15. So Sunday is indeed called the Lord's Day. It's the day when God expects His people to come together to worship Him in prayer and song, to observe the memorial of His Son's death, the Lord's Supper, as Paul is instructing the Corinthians and by extension us, to give means, to give of their means to support the work, uh, to, to give to needy saints and to uh, support evangelism, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 16. So we hear His voice through His Holy Word. That also is one of the acts of worship that we, that we come together. We reverently uh, bow in our hearts and listen with, with our ears to the Holy Word of God, to His Bible being preached. That's something else we need to do. 
Sunday is a special day because it is the day that his son was raised from the dead. It is also the day on which his church was established. In Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, always fell after a Sabbath, which would be a Sunday. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 20, where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Now isn't that interesting? So who are we to deny his assembly? Because he says, where there's even just two or three of you and you're gathered in my name, if you're fulfilling this command to assemble on the first day of the week and and, and worship uh, in this pattern that we've been looking at in the New Testament, he says, I'm there. I'm there. Who are we to deny that? Who are we to shun an invitation to his table to eat and drink with him in his memorial? Who are we to refuse tribute to his cause when we claim to bear his name? So you see, we're we're talking about something that's much more serious than just missing church, quote-unquote. There's more to it than that. It's more than that. It is forsaking, to use the Hebrew writer's language, Hebrews 10.24, it is forsaking the assembly, it is forsaking his table, it is forsaking his people, it is forsaking his invitation to worship. And we should never forget the significance of the Lord's day and render honor that is due him that day and every day. I want to briefly mention something else here. We have about five minutes left. And I want to briefly mention something else. You know, sometimes Sunday is called the new Sabbath or the Christian Sabbath. Uh, and some might even argue that we need to worship on, on Saturday rather than Sunday. Of course, we've proven that's not that's not the case. But um, as far as this idea of a, of a Christian Sabbath, uh, nowhere in the passages that we have read and nowhere in the New Testament is there a, a quote-unquote Christian Sabbath or Sunday being referred to as, as the Christian Sabbath or a new Sabbath. Uh, some will try to argue that based on a passage in Hebrews chapter four, and this really this study would go beyond uh, the scope of of time that we have left here. But I just want to briefly mention uh, Hebrews chapter four because a lot of people see this as uh, oh the writer saying we need to uh, worship on this new Sabbath here as he's mentioning in Hebrews chapter four. But that's actually not the point that he's making at all. The Sabbath was according to Exodus thirty one. Uh, in God's eyes, a special sign between he and Israel. So it was given for a specific purpose to a specific people, and it was predetermined in in scope. It was limited in in its scope. Now, it did point to something else further down the road, as all things in the New Testament do. I mean, Old Testament typology of the Sabbath, as we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 4, was pointing to uh, another day of rest, another a kind of rest, if if you will. Uh, so in Hebrews chapter 4, in, in verse 8, it says, If Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through, uh, fail through following the same example of disobedience. Uh, so there, the writer is referring to the example of disobedience in the Israelites who failed to enter the promised land, rest, uh, at least the first generation did. And his point is, in verse 9, that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God because 
the ancient Israel ultimately failed to enter into God's rest with him. If you back up earlier in that chapter, it says in verse 4 that God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, another passage, they shall not enter my rest. There again, referring to ancient Israel who was disobedient. Uh, so they could not enter into the rest of God or the peace of God uh, offered in, in the promised land. And the point that he's making is that we too have a Sabbath rest, quote-unquote, waiting for us, that we can enter into to some extent in this life when we begin to obey him. You see, Adam and Eve refused, refused to enter into God's rest and their disobedience. Ancient Israel refused to enter into God's rest through their disobedience. If you look at the last two verses of chapter 3, whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Unbelief and disobedience go hand in hand. And so the writer's point is, is that the rest, the, the, the Sabbath rest that God always intended is still open. And it's not pointing to a specific day. See, he's making the opposite point. That's what he means in verse 8 when he says, If Joshua had done it, if Joshua had given them real rest, then David, who wrote 400 years later, would not have spoken of, of, of another day in the previous verse that he just quoted. So there remains a rest for us to enter into with our God that he wants all people to enter into. And that's an eternal rest that he wants us to join him in, that he himself entered to on the seventh day after six days of creation. So it's not, the Sabbath was never pointing to a specific day, ultimately. God had something better and bigger and spiritual in mind. Perpetual service and perpetual worship that would be fully experienced and realized in eternity. Sunday is a significant day. It's not the new Sabbath. There is a, a, another rest that God has in mind for His people. And it's eternal. And I hope that we all are diligently striving to enter into that rest. That's what the Hebrew writer says. That's his point uh, that he's making here in Hebrews chapter 4. In verse 11, when he says... Uh, Verse 11, therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. So he says there is a promise that remains still of entering his rest and we need to be diligent to enter into it. Not referring to, again, a specific day, but to the eternal rest that God is offering to all people. Well, we're out of time this morning, so we're going to end it right there. I've enjoyed uh, studying with you. I hope you've uh, gained some insight from uh, the study of the scriptures. It's always good for me to go and remind myself of these things. I think for all of us too, to remember the importance of the Lord's day. If you have any questions, please email us at leonvalleychurch at gmail.com. Visit our website at leonvalleychurch.org uh, where you can find more of these broadcasts, uh, sermons, and, and other articles and things. Think, again, thanks for joining me. I'm Jason Garcia, and this has been Faithful Sayings.